Hey everybody, thanks for listening in to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm here with Terry Fakes and we are continuing our march through the Bible and we are in uh, 2 Peter today. Now a lot of you out there are saying, did I miss 1 Peter? Uh, because we tried to do First and Second Peter, First uh, and Second books together, but mm-hmm. there's a reason why we're doing Second Peter by itself and it's not just that you just started it in Sunday school. <laughs> Uh, it's partly because the subject matter of First and Second Peter are so different. very different. Yeah. In places like First and Second Thessalonians, you see considerable overlap in the content. Of mm-hmm. course, in the Old Testament books that we're doing, First and Second Chronicles or right. First and Second Samuel, it makes a lot more sense to do those because they're in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Um, here, the subject matter is really different. Uh, if anything, this book should be done as a one-two with Jude right. as, as opposed to right. First Peter. Uh, and that's led a lot of people to talk about whether or not Peter wrote this book. Right. So there, as you'll see as we go through, First and Second Peter are about very different things, but they obviously are connected. These are two letters from Peter within a few years of each other mm-hmm. to similar churches. But we want to dive into this one. This is just a great book. And one of the things I've noticed as we've studied this book to prepare for this is just how many famous sayings and phrases and verses that are in the common Christian vocabulary are in this book and how little people preach this book. In fact, I I think I've only heard this book preached once exegetically. I think people do preach from chapter 1, verse 3 through 11 a Mm -hmm. lot, and you'll hear people use chapter 1, verses... 19 through 21 a lot when they're talking about the authority of Scripture, which we're going to get to. But I I think I've actually only heard this preached through once as an exegetical series. And you were part of it. And I was part of it, um, to my detriment, because (laughs) it it was a series that they were doing up at Eagle Heights, and uh, they decided to ask me if I would come do chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which, if you have your Bible in front of you, I think are... It, it, it's, it's easily in the top three most difficult passages in the New Testament. Uh, I agree. You have angels who are kept in chains and gloomy darkness. You have Noah and uh, the extinction of, of, of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have righteous Lot who you have to fill in some details of what happens in Genesis. I mean, this is a wild passage. So they say, hey, we'd love for you to come up and preach, but you have to preach this passage. <laughs> so I learned a lot preparing for that. I'm really uh-huh. thankful to get the opportunity, but it is a tough passage. Mm-hmm. And in fact, at some point, I would love for us to do like a Mount Rushmore of the hardest passages in the New that would Testament be a to great. preach. For my money, two of them are in Peter. Okay, Second mm-hmm. Peter chapter two verses four through ten, and then literally one page over in your Bible, First Peter chapter three, uh, verses eighteen through twenty-two, where you get baptism and Noah and the patience of God and the spirits, right. Christ going to preach to the spirits in prison. I mean, th- those two passages are both very difficult, both in Peter's epistles. Right. Uh, he throws shade on Paul for being hard to understand, but <laughs> That's these, these are very hard to understand. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot to this book. And the New Testament, as we made the point before, it, it's less important in a lot of ways to understand the surrounding context. Part of that is because we don't know as much about the context on some of these. Right. And Second Peter is kind of one of those. But there's a really interesting puzzle in figuring out when this book was written, who it was written to, what we know about it. So Walk us through a little bit of the background of this book. Yeah, this. 
Letter second, Peter. I'm going to start with the assumption, just because we could talk a lot about uh, the pros and cons of who wrote this book, but it claims to be Simon Peter, uh, slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to take that at its word, that this is written by Simon Peter. Do you think this is the most... Do, do you think among scholars who don't think that certain books in the New Testament were written by who they say they were, which is to point out, yes. I think, the absurdity of that anyway. Right. But do you think this is the most controversial one? Yeah, I'm trying to think about that for a second because some people are very vociferous about a couple of Paul's letters, but I'd say this is the this is the one that is lowest on the authenticity scale for mm-hmm. liberal scholars. Yeah, yes, I would say I that agree. too. I think you're right. Well, let's assume for a moment that this is written by Peter, which I believe to be true for a variety of reasons that we just won't take the time to go into here. And then in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 1, he just says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. So again, let's just put you know two and two together here. We have preserved for us two letters from Peter. The book of 1 Peter, uh, the letter, the first letter, was written to, uh, it says, all those in, uh, and he starts to list out all these regions, but they're basically Asia Minor. It is what is modern-day Turkey. It's where Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus and to the Colossians. It's where John in the book of Revelation writes to the seven churches. And this letter of 1 Peter is also written to believers in that. It's a huge area, yeah. but written to believers in that whole Country. If I know you will. you're wanting to show everybody a map right now. I who's desperately want to show you a map here. Just to describe this, this is a gigantic area. So if you are looking at a map, if you flip to the back of your Bible, the best map to look at is like Paul's second or third missionary right. journey. Right. Usually you have a map of Revelation churches or something in there. Mm-hmm. Everything east of Greece right. and, and Rome and everything west of Jerusalem that is north of the Mediterranean, that's this whole... I mean, if you look at the way the territories are labeled, he just goes basically across the whole area. Pontus won't be labeled on there, but you'll see Cappadocia in the east, you'll see Galatia, you'll see Bithynia. This is a gigantic area. And culturally very diverse. But So that's where 1 Peter was written. And so if this is indeed the second letter and 1 Peter is the first, then you have Peter writing these two letters to this group of believers. So when was it written? Well, based on the way it, it looks, uh, 1 Peter, uh, there's a great tradition in the church. You won't find this in your New Testament, but a strong tradition in the very early church uh, fathers that Peter spent the last 10, 15 years of his ministry in Rome. Uh, there are a little detective work to be done here, but let's just assume for a moment that he's in Rome. That's how you get the Pope. That's right. uh, Of course, absolutely. <laughs> so he's the Bishop of Rome, first Bishop of Rome. How you get the Pope. That's right. So... Basically, here's how the timing works. If you look at 1 Peter and the themes it's talking about, you get the idea that it's written, say, in 60 AD or so, and written to Asia Minor to encourage with several interesting themes to those believers. But then something happens in Rome, and we know the exact day of this happening is the Emperor Nero, who's been emperor this whole time from 54 to 68, so he's uh, when Paul is brought to Rome under guard, Nero is the emperor. When Peter arrives there to preach, Nero is the emperor. Well, in 64 AD, Nero decided 
according to almost every historian you will read in that era, he decided to burn down part of Rome because they were just slums and he wanted some urban renewal. So he paid some guys to start a fire and sure enough, a bunch of Roman citizens, Romans were killed. It was a huge cataclysm. And immediately afterwards, word starts going around that Nero did this. Well, even if you're emperor, this is not good. It's not good to have people think you just killed a bunch of your own citizens and it put his rule at risk. And so in 64, he decided, I've got to take the heat off of me. I'll blame somebody else. And he blamed the Christians. And so from 64 AD until Nero's death, he killed himself in 68, you see tremendous and brutal persecution of Christians. It's thought that this is the time when Paul is imprisoned the second time, and he wrote his last letter that we know of is 2 Timothy. And you can tell when he writes it, he's like, I'm in prison and I think I'm going to be killed. Well, this letter, 2 Peter, I believe is written in that same time frame. And it's a farewell letter. It's a, I'm in prison and I'm going to be killed. So I suspect that this second letter is written between 64 and 68. And Peter, this is the last letter that we have that Peter wrote. And one of the things that makes Second Peter so interesting to me is, if you were going to write a letter to this whole group of believers... What would you write about if you only had a few pages? Mm-hmm. And that's the book of Second Peter. Yeah, that's a really interesting point to set up Second Peter is to think about this as not just an encyclical letter to mm-hmm. a lot of churches probably. Right. But also as somebody who knows this is the last thing they're going to get to say. So we have that for Paul in Second Timothy in the sense that it's his last words. But think about, too, for Paul, maybe the closest example of an encyclical would be the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians is to Ephesus, but, and I think we've talked about this, because of some textual variants and things, we don't know that it was only to Ephesus. It could have been to an entire region. And in fact, there could have been a lot of letters that had the text of the book of Ephesus. And this just happens to be the one that went to Ephesus. Right. So it could have been, hey, this is to the whole region. This is kind of Paul, uh, you know, Paul for dummies. And we're sending it out. has all of his major theological points in Uh it. And we're going to send it around to the churches. And the manuscripts that we have have Ephesus at the top of it. Um, And some of them that don't. So this is both of those things combined. It's right. the person. It's it, it's the the personal letter like Second Timothy, even though it's not to a specific person, to churches mm-hmm. that Peter really loves. But it's also an overview, a, a thing that he says to stir them up by way of reminder mm-hmm. of some of the key things that Peter wants to say to them. So I like that you pointed out, the, the, and, and we go back to. Uh, when we talked about the book of Philemon and dating Paul's letters and talking about the context, there are these little verses that seem insignificant that are hugely important in figuring out what's happening in, right. in the New Testament and in these books. And so for this one, you see that it he says it's the second letter he's written. So you look back to 1 Peter saying maybe that's the first one of this mm-hmm. two-letter set, although he probably wrote a lot of letters. Yeah. And we say maybe it's that region. Then later he says, Paul's already written you a letter. So we right. say, could this be one of the letters that we have in the New Testament? Well, 
If it is, it's got to be Ephesus. I don't right. think that's super likely, but it's got to either be Ephesus or maybe Colossians or maybe the letter to the Laodiceans, which right. is in the same area that we don't have, but we right. know that he wrote one. Well, that's right. You know, so you put all these things together and you decide, okay, it's in this region. Paul wrote a letter there. He had his second missionary journey in this area. So maybe it's one of those churches that he wrote a letter to that we don't have. Maybe it's to where Paul did his early ministry in the Cappadocia area. Right. We don't have any record of that. We don't even know the churches he planted there. We just know he was there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it's those little verses that you come across that, that give you clues and insights into what's going on in the first century. So the other thing I want to comment on before we get to the text itself is the similarity between Second Peter and Jude. So if you... Look at a commentary, for example. You'll usually see a commentary of Second Peter and Jude together. Right. It's very rare to find one without the other, and the reason for that is Chapter Two of Second Peter and Jude are very similar, mm-hmm. very similar. In fact, some people, again, if you're going to look at a scholar who says there's no way Second Peter was written by Peter, it's written late. It's, an, it's mm-hmm. a person who's writing under Peter's name. They're typically going to argue that Second Peter is quoting from or basing something on the book of Jude. Right. Um, and there's various arguments for why they think Jude is the primary letter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you see this whole, this technique play out in a lot of different areas of the New Testament. For mm-hmm. example, you see it in the Gospels. Mark's Gospel, right. Matthew and Luke, were they copying Mark? Were they correcting him? Were they using the same source material? Um, you know, there's always the assertion that they're all writing about the same historical events that happened and the same eyewitnesses that saw them. Um, and then you have this in Ephesians and Colossians. So is it possible that somebody else wrote Ephesians and copied Paul's letter or Colossians? Right. So like, well, maybe it's, they're the same because they came from the same mind. <laughs> exactly. um, you know, that, it, it, these things sometimes don't occur to scholars. Right. <laughs> but in Second Peter and Jude, I think one of the things that's important to remember is both of these people would have been in the Jerusalem church. So both of these people would have been teaching together, Peter and Jude. They would have known each other. They would have preached together. They would right. have studied together. They would have done ministry together. And so is it that unlikely that they both had this kind of example or string of examples that they right. used to make a similar point? That's not unlikely at all. Now, we teach texts differently, but we tell some of the same stories. We use some of the same examples because we've heard each other teach. Typically, I've heard you teach it. I just take your stuff, claim it as my own, and people love it. You know, but it, you wonder if that kind of situation is happening. I, I agree because the wording isn't exact. And if you just think about this in human terms, I'm just going to leave the Holy Spirit out of this for just a second to say hey, this is very believable, even in human terms. Is yeah, you hear a great sermon illustration, or you hear a great idea. And then you would go and copy it. And I remember the words of Kevin DeYoung. One time he said, uh, I'm going to use an illustration from my friend so-and-so that's really good. He said, the first time I use an illustration, I always credit it. Second time I use an illustration, I say, as I always say. you know. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you, what you have here yeah. is a similar idea that even if you remove inspiration, this happens to us all the time. So that's something you'll notice when you read. T- typically, people reading through the New Testament will read First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John, Jude, Revelation. Be like, hmm, I've I've seen some of this before. Yeah, this sounds familiar. The other place that you'll see some really similar stuff to Second Peter is in the Book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. So in the first 
three chapters of Revelation, you get the letters to the seven churches from Jesus. He's addressing churches that are in this same area. Right. They're struggling with the same things. Big surprise. They're probably written relatively close to the same time, at least within a right. generation of each other. Mm-hmm. And so the it really lends credence to the fact that these people knew what was going on in these churches. Right. Because they're addressing the same concerns over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again. So to dive into the text here, one of the things that's really interesting about this book is it represents the tail end of the chronology of the New Testament in terms of the apostolic generation. Right. So Peter and Paul in Rome together towards the end of the reign of Nero, probably outlived only by John at this point, depending on how long you think Matthew lived. And again, Mm -hmm. all these books, there's arguments over when they're dated. But this is really the end of the chronology of the first generation of Christians. This is 30-some-odd years after Christ has been crucified. Mm -hmm. The churches are planted. The gospel is spread around Asia, into Greece, into Rome. Uh And the emphasis begins to change in the churches. So mm-hmm. early on in Peter's life, the thing that he's most concerned with is evangelizing. Right. Then you see the thing that he's most concerned with is being persecuted. Right. Then you see him shift his focus to, okay, we have Gentiles, we have Jews. Yes. How do we navigate this issue at the Jerusalem conference? And the last issue that you see him grapple with in his ministry is false teaching. Which is interesting because this is the same issue that you see John dealing with at the end of his ministry. Exactly. It's the same thing that you see the early church fathers in the late 1st and early 2nd century dealing with. Is False teaching becomes the major issue in the early church. Persecution ends up dying down towards the end of the 1st century after the reign of Domitian. And then in the 2nd century, towards 3rd and 4th centuries, you actually see persecution going down the popularity of Christianity going up, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you have to have a church council in the early 4th century because you got to figure out what is it that Christians actually believe. The seeds of that are here in this book. I agree. And you know what really strikes me is Peter, in his personal situation, if you assume my chronology, is in prison. He's going to be crucified uh, by Nero, and he sees this horrible persecution. And yet... His last words, basically, to these churches is not to warn them about persecution. It's to warn them about false teaching. I have a sense, and you see the same thing in the book of Revelation, when Jesus, he talks about persecution. He talks about persevering, etc. But he spends more time talking about uh, lives that aren't godly and teaching that isn't godly. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if they understood and Uh, Obviously, God understands that the greatest threat to the church is not persecution. It is false teaching. It's misleading teaching. Yeah. If you want to preserve your legacy, and the the apostles knew this, persecution grows the church. Yes. But what will really tank the future of the church is splintering off into factions, first of all, and second of all, factions that are absorbed by false teaching. So uh, what Peter is doing is really farsighted. He wants the gospel to be preserved. You see the same concern in Jude. He says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but instead I decided I needed to write to you about our common salvation that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So it's an interesting perspective that these guys decided the best thing you can do for the future of the church is, 
is warning them about persecution, but to make sure that the thing that's going to preserve them through persecution is intact, which is right. the apostolic teaching, the gospel, the correct theology, believing the right things. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 1, he dives into a really famous passage, and this is a really important promise in Scripture. Verse 3, after he introduces himself, his divine power, Christ's divine power, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, and this is a bombshell sentence, through Mm -hmm. them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Wow, the, the thing he opens with is, look, you've been given everything. Right. Through the knowledge of Christ. Why? Because in Christ, you actually get to participate in the divine nature. Mm-hmm. That is a crazy sentence to write. It really is. I mean, I, obviously people take that a lot of different directions, but I want to link it back to the creation in the image of God. And so there is this likeness in us. There is the adoption into the family. There is the full communion. That is a powerful thing to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the image has been restored. It's been redeemed. We've been redeemed. And uh, we are now partakers of God in the way that we were designed to be, the Mm -hmm. way that we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So then he says, okay, because this is true, make every reason then to to grow and supplement your faith. And then he goes through this great list. And you've probably heard sermons on this before. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and brotherly affection and love. And if these qualities are yours, you will always be fruitful. And, um, you know, this, he says in verse 10, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Um, This is the confirmation of the Christian life. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that 2 Peter emphasizes that I think is a really important wake-up call. It's a good reminder for us in the church is what you believe and what you do really matter. Right. And they mattered in the early church. They matter now. We tend to emphasize grace and forgiveness, and we're very evangelistic as a culture, Mm -hmm. but we're not that great at discipleship typically. So we focus a ton on the front door. So Come as you are, be as you are. We want to be unassuming. We don't want to turn anybody away. We want to be loving. We want you to know that you're accepted here. And then people get in, and we continue to preach that message so that we lose some of the teaching of the New Testament, which is you have to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in fact, the teaching of the New Testament isn't just you should do this. It's you will do this. This is proof of your salvation. This is making your election sure. Your calling and election are uh, validated, if you will, by the work of the Spirit in our lives. Yeah, so this isn't earning your salvation through works, because this happens post-conversion. This is proving and growing in and Mm -hmm. demonstrating, and the logical consequence of being in Christ is that these things will take place in your life. And what we're going to see is Second Peter, and we see this, like you said, in, in 1 John, and we see this in Revelation. He's willing to say, and we need to be willing to hear this, if these things are not happening, right. there is something wrong. Right. Now, 
what you see is not Peter saying, okay, on your first day as a Christian, if you're not perfect, then you right. weren't a Christian. But what he does say is, look, when it comes to false teaching, if your actions don't match up to what the Christian life is supposed to look like, we got a problem. Mm-hmm. So in chapter one, it's all about, hey, look, you've been given all these things. You're growing. You mm-hmm. should be abounding in the love of God and these qualities and the spirit is bringing these things about in your life. And then you get this amazing section after that about the reliability of God's word and the testimony that he and the apostles have preached. We didn't, in verse 16, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. You think about Peter and uh, all the um, accusations and speculation about the empty tomb. Right. And, you know, maybe the the guards stole the body and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. He's like, look, we, we weren't just making us, making stuff up when, when we did this. Right. We were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus Christ. Yes. And then he, he extends that exact same thing back to the Old Testament prophets. Verse 19, not only did we see with our own eyes, it's, it's confirmation of what was written hundreds mm-hmm. of years ago. For the we have the prophetic word fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention to. So you can't unhitch from the Old Testament here. That's, <laughs> that is outlawed in Second Peter. Um, and knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is high doctrine of Scripture. Right. Very high doctrine of Scripture. And it's a validation of, uh, you know, I would summarize this in a couple of ways, but one would be truth matters. He's basically saying, I'm not telling you the best way to live necessarily. I'm not here telling you how to make, uh, live your best life now or, you know, get your marriage to work better, your job to go better. I'm just here to tell you the truth in all of its unvarnished glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really strong. And you're going to need it for what he's going to say in chapter 2. So if you think about it, he's established two things. In Christ, you have been reunited with God. And because of that, you are partaking in the divine nature. And what that means in shorthand is you will become holy Mm -hmm. in different ways. It doesn't mean you won't do two steps forward, one step back every now and then, or three steps back every now and then. But you will become holy. And secondly... This isn't just something that we made up. This is actually the outcropping of what God has been doing for all of history. Mm -hmm. So you have the prophetic word. We go by that. That is the words of the Holy Spirit, the words of God. We have, um, obviously, our own testimony of how our lives have been changed and how um, we are adding these things to our faith. And then he pivots and says, so let's address the major problem here, which is false teaching. Yeah. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies or divisions. That's what that word literally means. Uh, Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves destruction. And so this is the crux of what he wants to talk about, is the greatest threat to you and to your election and your calling is this corruption of the truth, of this truth that we delivered to you once and for all, 
It's all, it reminiscent a little bit of Paul talking to the churches of Galatia, and he said, you foolish Galatians, who in the world put a spell on you that you've now believed some other gospel, which isn't a gospel at all, other than the one we delivered to you? He said, in fact, if anybody delivers to you a gospel different than what we told you, may they be cursed. And this is kind of what Peter's saying is, you heard the truth from us, but there are going to be other people that are going to try and sway you. There seems to be reason... And there's a connection here on the negative side. You, you made the connection on the positive side. Is What you believe and who you become in Christ has to manifest itself in your living. Mm-hmm. He points to these false teachers and he said that the false teaching manifests itself in their behavior. So not only are they telling you something that isn't true, they're also living out things that aren't true. It appears that these false teachers were antinomians, which is a very normal problem today, and that is they weren't legalists. They were on the side of license. You know, Mm -hmm. they're teaching, well, now you've heard that Christians can't do this or that, but I'm just here to tell you, you can do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you see on both sides of this that there is fruit, if you will, coming out of the teaching. Yeah. And and this is a hard word, like we said at the beginning. This is mm-hmm. this is difficult but necessary to hear. And and there's definitely going to be people who are listening to this that don't like this. But right. I would I would just beg you to look at what the text actually says. There is a correlation between behavior, belief, and teaching. Mm-hmm. False teachers as appealing as they are. Look, we shouldn't sit here and think I mean, false teaching, who would fall for that? I mean, it's false. Well, th- that's kind of the point, is false teachers are really good at getting into the mainstream. If they mm-hmm. weren't, they wouldn't be brought up in this book. They wouldn't be in First John. You know, what happens in First John is, and, and it may be written to a similar place, but what happens in First John is the false teachers literally start a church right across the street, right down, yeah, you know, right. neighborhood from the true church. And more people start going to the false church than are going to the real church. And John is reminding them, hey, it may be popular now. They went out from us, but they are not of us. Right. And that's the same thing that that Peter says here is, as you read, look, false prophets are going to arise. And one of the ways that you're going to know them is that many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What could that mean? Okay, this is a difficult verse to construe mm-hmm. because what does it mean that the way of truth will be blasphemed? Because essentially what these false teachers are saying, again, you see this in with Jezebel in Revelation, right. is these people are basically saying, you can do whatever you want, especially sexually. You can do mm-hmm. whatever you want because it's free grace. Right. So the more we sin, the more God forgives us. Why, is, why would that be a bad thing? Right. We're, we're actually big grace people here. Mm-hmm. You guys are legalists because right. you're saying you can't do this. But what he's saying is the way of truth will be blasphemed. Here's what we got to remember. The truth is not just that God accepts you the way that you are. Right. The truth is also that God will not leave you the way that you are. Absolutely. If you are a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are going to change. And that change over the long haul is going to be in one direction towards Mm -hmm. the image of Christ. So by giving in, by teaching people to be sexually immoral, by um, telling people things that are not true, the way that that blasphemes the truth is that when you become a Christian, nothing actually changes. Right. That Peter and Paul and John and Jesus are all clear. 
that blasphemes the truth because all of them teach when you are in Christ, you change. You say no to the things of the world. You say yes to the things of God. Now, Peter is very, he, he, he is a very wise pastor mm-hmm. because he knows that one of the things that's going to go through your head when you read that is, that's not what I see happening. I don't see that happening in my life sometimes. I don't see that happening in other The people I know who have the best lives are the ones whose lives have changed the least mm-hmm. from being Christians. Mm-hmm. He knows that that objection is going to come up. And what he does is he goes through a series of examples. Now, like we said, this I think this is one of the toughest passages yeah. in the Bible to determine exactly what he's talking but about. But keeping in mind this context. Yeah, his point is God's fa- his past faithfulness is a guarantee of his future faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to this. Look, if God judged all these people and saved all these people, he's going to make good on his promises to you. Right. This is this is essentially a longer version of when Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the end, things are going to come out in right. the balance. If God didn't spare the angels, if he didn't spare the ancient world in the time of Noah, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then he won't spare the evildoers in this age. Right. And if he rescued Lot, which we find out Lot was actually righteous here, so you have to combine this with Genesis because he's not great in Genesis. Right. So Peter knows some things that we don't uh, from just that text. And if he saved him... And if he is going to be faithful in the future, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Stick it out. What he's saying is in the long run, false teaching does not pay. It pays in the short run, but it does not pay in the long run. Right. And then things get pretty bad for false teachers from here on out. Well, it really does. Say, take a little time this week and read. He gives the example of Balaam, who is a false teacher in the Old Testament. Another time where we don't get the whole story of Balaam in the original story. We find out later in the Old Testament, we find out in the book of Jude, that Balaam actually led the people of God into sexual immorality. So not only did he, not only was he paid to curse the people of Israel, but he also was teaching false things. So that later when he's put to death by the sword, it says, because... He led the people into ungodliness. Well, and let me pause for a second because make connect this to the point I made first. So Nero is killing Christians. He's literally crucifying Christians, lighting them on fire at night to be torches in Rome. I mean, he is doing horrific things. Obviously, Jesus condemns that. Obviously, he will uh, bear the judgment for what he's done. But in this letter... What does Peter condemn in the strongest possible words? Is it Nero? No. Why? Not because what Nero's doing is good. I think back to what Jesus said. Don't fear the one who can kill your body and can do no more to you. Fear the one who can kill your soul. Now he's talking about God, but the point is false teachers, Nero can only kill your body. False teachers can lead you astray and jeopardize eternity. And so Peter has stronger words for these false teachers than he does for Nero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in 1 Peter, he's saying, obey the government. Right. You know, because he notices that the most important thing that can happen to you is that your soul is united exactly. in Christ, back and reconciled with God. So he comes down hard on these false teachers. And, you know, this typically plays two ways in the modern world, as all things are. You have the people who, at, on the one hand, just don't take this into account at all. 
mm-hmm. in the sense of like there's no false teachers. Everybody, everybody's out to get everybody. I thought we we're supposed to be people of grace and love, and we, let's just chill on the doctrine policing for a little bit. And sometimes that's true. Right. Sometimes it is. It's like, okay, you know what? Look, we are a millimeter away from each other. Let's not jeopardize the (laughs) unity of the church over that. And at the same time, there's the opposite extreme of the people who don't think that you should ever make a big deal about anything. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you take the text the way that it's supposed to be read, you realize that on the one hand, one of the most important things in the church is unity. 1 Corinthians is written for this purpose. Philippians is written for this purpose. Get along in Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, have the same mind, have the same understanding. But that same mindset is actually founded on certain things. It's not unity at all costs. Right. And it is not just get along no matter what you have to agree to. Right. It is get along in the knowledge of what has been revealed. And when you have people who are teaching things that are not true... That actually, and this is the point that you just made really well, is worse persecution than non-believers killing you. Right. And, you know, in First Peter, it's social ostracization. You, you being isolated and alienated and cast out of social organizations in First Peter, that persecution is not as bad as the persecution of sitting under false teaching. And in human terms, that sounds ridiculous, you know, but... This is God's economy, and it's an insight into God's economy. If you think your 90 years on earth is all you have, this makes no sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you think that you are going to be alive for eternity, then this makes all the sense in the world is kill my body is a blip in eternity. Mm -hmm. And so this is far more dangerous than physical. So I, I don't... Think we need to extrapolate you know, to to talk about all the practical implications of this. Mm-hmm. But, but one of them is we need to have our eyes out for false teaching. Mm-hmm. To think that in America today there's no false teaching, and to think that it would be so easy to spot that no one would possibly ever fall for it right. or, or, or follow these people is naive. Mm-hmm. According to what the Bible actually says, mm-hmm. the te- the preachers and teachers who are leading people into sexual immorality based on what the Bible says. It is totally 100% clear. That's false teaching. doesn't matter how great a preacher they are. doesn't matter if they're right on other stuff. That's false teaching. And people who to teach you other things that they write in here, like it's okay to um, sacrifice what you know to be true for earthly pleasures of any kind. Right. False teaching. Right. John gets into a little bit more of the doctrinal part of false teaching. Mm-hmm. You see him say things like, um, you can't say that Jesus is accursed. That's not something we really struggle with, but right. apparently that was a big deal to them. Or Jesus didn't come in the flesh. You know, that was a big deal to them. You get the doctrinal side of it. Peter is a lot more concerned with the behavioral side of it. Right. These people that are actually exploiting people, they're leading them into ungodliness. That's false teaching. So in chapter 3, with that said, he makes a point that out of context is, is difficult to understand, and people have, have used these verses in chapter 3 to make some really interesting points about the end times. But in that context, it makes total sense for him to say, okay, this is the second time I'm writing to you, stirring you up by way of reminder. You should remember that um, false prophets are going to come, scoffers, but Jesus is also going to come. And he is going to come, and this is going to be one of those places where it's a famous verse. You're like, oh, that's in 2 Peter. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Mm Mm-hmm. He says, because 
you know, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Another famous verse. Yeah. Um, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, which you might be thinking, like, I don't know, 2020 years after <laughs> Christ. Um, but he is patient, not wishing any should perish, but he is waiting for all to reach repentance. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that were done on it will be exposed. Mm. So this is a picture of the second coming. This is also one of the verses that people use to talk about the rapture. Right. One of the few verses, actually. Right. That yeah, there's not much. And this is very obtuse. But his conclusion then in the next verse, 11, if you want to read on with that, is just that's the so what then. Yeah, the so what is okay. So he's not making... I mean, he is making an eschatological statement. Yes, he is. Exactly. But he's not saying, hey, let me tell you some really cool insights about how the world's going to end. Right. He's saying, no, since the world is going to end, and since Christ is going to come back for us, what are we going to do? Since all these things are going to be dissolved, since all your stuff is going to be gone, um, what sort of people ought you to live in lives of holiness and godliness? Right. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And a lot of people quote this verse and don't quote the next one. Right. Um, heaven and earth burned up, but according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We live with God forever, mm-hmm. not as babies sitting on clouds, but as people who have right. spent our whole life preparing for eternity. He's setting up uh, two visions here, if you will. One, he says, there's a very compelling vision given to you by these false teachers. It's a vision of sensuousness. It's a vision of greed. It's a vision of prosperity. It's a vision of uh, the, this is the good life. And he says, if it's not based on the truth, and I don't mean that you can't have some prosperity in life and still believe in the truth. That's not my point. My point is, is that will you trade the truth of God for those things that are untrue, or look at this vision. Everything that those false teachers are appealing to you with is going to be dissolved. And look what's going to happen. You're Mm -hmm. going to see a new heavens and a new earth and a life in eternity. He says, I know which one is the more appealing in the short term, but I want to set before you these two visions. Yeah. So the big so what of the entire book then comes down to 314. Therefore... So having said all of this, and, and mm-hmm. this is one of the things I love about Second Peter is the line of logic, even though the texts yeah. are difficult, the line of logic is easy. Yes. If you are in Christ and have been given everything you need for life and godliness, and you have the prophetic word as a guide, you have your Bible as a guide, you're confronting false teaching, which is trying to make that trade-off between earthly pleasure, sensuality, in exchange for the truth. If you're resisting that, and you're keeping an eternal perspective... Therefore, verse 14, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Yes. We're right back to chapter one. Right. Adding to your faith virtue and self-control and brotherly love and growing in your usefulness to God and, and in your maturity and waiting for the Lord to come back. Because like you said, your 90 years on earth, if you get that, are going to be an absolute blip on the spectrum of eternity. So focus on eternity. And that's the end of the argument here. Uh, And then you get a couple of little editorial comments that are really fascinating. So 
again, verse 15, you see him mention Paul, which mm-hmm. they may be in cells next to each other. We That's have no idea. entirely possible. They're yes. in Rome at least close <clears throat> to the same time. Mm-hmm. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Again, whether we have this letter or not, we don't know. Right. Um, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in some of them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. One of the most comforting verses in the Bible (laughs) is that Peter thought that Paul's letters were difficult to understand Um, and that people twist them into uh, things that aren't true as they do with other scriptures. So this is just a great little ending, a little gem at the end to see Peter referencing Paul, especially after the differences that they'd had right. earlier in right. in the church. This is what true unity looks like in Christ. They doesn't mean that they didn't have times when they didn't get along or something happened, but what it means is they hold to the same unifying truths mm-hmm. that overcome background, even overcome behaviors. This is what makes forgiveness possible. You know, it's interesting that the words there, without spot or blemish, you see that those two Greek words a lot in Paul's writing to mm-hmm. talk about holiness is the idea of being unspotted by the world, as James is going to say, mm-hmm. you know, to be holy and blameless in his sight, to be unspotted. Uh, you see those words, and it seems to me that those must have been very common ways to help describe what holiness looked like. Well, they're, they're, these Greek words are <clears throat> translations of the Hebrew sacrificial words. Right. So this these this word without spot or blemish is a Greek word that is a translation of the words you see in the Old Testament for a lamb without spot, a perfect lamb, some a, a lamb that hasn't been blemished, no birth defects, no injuries, mm-hmm. no nothing. So this is sacrificial language here that you see in all of the New Testament, that we we are looking to be that way, a perfect sacrifice for God. Of course, we know that that only comes from Christ. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. But it's this same image of the perfect sacrifice to God. And an interesting counterpoint, if you think about it here, when he talks about sacrifice... And by that, he means sacrificing yourself. And then when you talk about false teachers, it's all about indulgence. Mm -hmm. And so you set up that counterpoint of indulgence to the world or sacrifice to be unspotted and unblemished for God. Yeah, what a great word to end on for Peter. He, this is his last letter, the end of his ministry. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care to not be carried away in the error of lawless people and losing your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So he brings it back to his point. Right. Grow in the grace and knowledge of God. That's the thing that's going to last forever. And I, I like that, that he puts grace and knowledge together because we too often, in the church and outside the church, want to separate that and say, well, you can be knowledgeable but not caring. You can be caring but not knowledgeable. And And in the New Testament, grace and knowledge always go together. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.